Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Oh, you're a mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Good afternoon, Cambridge, and welcome to your film fantastical hour with Bums on Seats. We have a very busy show for you today. My name is Yossi Osman and I am your host. And joining me, we have Ashley Capaldi. Hiya. Emma Marchant. Hi there. Alistair Ryder. Hello. And Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. We've got five films to cover today, starting with James Gray's Ad Astra, the Brad Pitt ghost, Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt ghost to space drama. Then we'll move on to a female stripper film, Hustlers. Exotic dancers. Oh my goodness! <laughs> uh, then we will go back in time to 1991 and Thelma and Louise. Following that, we go to The Last Tree, a lovely uh, drama, a coming of age drama, which we'll talk about, and finally we will go to Downton Abbey. So to start us off, let's go to space with Ad Astra. What is happening out there is a crisis of unknown magnitude. We believe your father may be involved. My father's dead. What exactly are you requiring from me? Exploration isn't always a noble venture. We have to hold out the possibility that your father may be hiding from us. We have a job to do. Are you ready? I'm ready. was the trailer for Ad Astra, a new film directed by James Gray, starring Brad Pitt as astronaut Roy McBride, who travels to the outer edges of the solar system to find his father who went missing 30 years beforehand. Uh, as on his journey, he unravels a mystery that will threaten the very survival of planet Earth. Um, we're going to start with Emma, I think. Uh, a lot of the reviews are talking about Brad Pitt's performance. Is that the main talking point, do you think? <coughs> um, <laughs> oh, my goodness. That sounds like a nerve. Oh, my goodness. No, it probably is. I mean, this is... I, I think we were talking about this before. I, I understand that James Gray has said very much so that he wants to make a film that feels like this really could be space travel in sort of 30 years' time. And I think that, for me, was one of the most... The, the, the style and the sets and the... And the visuals of it are one of the most interesting things. Brad Pitt is pretty much... I don't think there's, there's barely a scene that Brad Pitt is not in, to be honest. So it is his film, but it is... It's the Brad... You know, it's it's controlled Brad Pitt. It's internalised Brad Pitt, and maybe so that's not the Brad Pitt. Does he carry it well, then, if he's pretty much in every scene? He carries it well enough, I would say. I mean, I... I... I I was distinctly underwhelmed by this. I think I went in. I, I do. I love a space film, um, and it did look great. But I just feel that the. I mean, the, to be honest, the rest of the cast are so wasted. I was. I, I think I was just saying this before we went on air. You get an actress like Ruth Negger, and she's literally on screen for maybe two minutes, ninety seconds. It felt like, mm. and it just felt like a real waste. The same Donny, Donald Sutherland, Tommy Lee Jones. There's barely anybody who's in it for any length of time apart mm. from Brad Pitt. So, yes, I guess by default it becomes his film. OK. Um, there's a lot of... Well, it has been described, Lorcan, as a minimalist film. Is that a way of saying that actually there's not really much going on? I would not say this is a minimalist film. Whenever I think minimalist sci-fi, I think, like, Logan's Run, where, like, really stripped-down sets, where, like, mm. every every shot of this is so, like, well put together and vibrant. Um but I will say overall, I think Ad Astra is an admirable disaster. Oh, I think it is nice. <laughs> oh, dear. How are you beating me to the puns today? <laughs> I was so happy Yazi came to me first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it's like it is sixty percent just pure peak filmmaking and fantastic craft. Forty percent what on earth was James Gray thinking? Uh why did you say that? Um, because the whole um it's very literally an optimistic remake of Apocalypse Now. Um, and 
which carries which carries the pace very well mm-hmm. you 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 never you never really bored in terms of what happens but the problem is you get bored in what's not happening if you know what i mean like the whole film is carried by an internal monologue by uh Brad Pitt that um is painfully obvious it's up there with like the um it's up there with the like the later re-release for Blade Runner where Deckard is talking a monologue through the whole film and it's just would you be quiet and let me infer what's happening from the visuals um i think that is intentionally there from the beginning i think that is James Gray's passion uh way of way of telling the story because it is aping off of apocalypse now and stuff like that um i just don't think i rewatched uh lost city of zed before this mm-hmm. and it reminded me of what an ambitious beautiful film that is but yeah. for two hours 40 minutes there is not a lot of content and substance to, to hold you okay. and this is kind of similar i just don't think there's enough substance to the story here to hold you for the two hours ashley would you agree with that do you think there is is there is there more to it I just seen how much it costs to make and that annoys me. I don't like expensive films, I don't like long films. 87 and a half million dollars to make it. It looks but it you well, can see where it. the money yeah, went. The, the money is all there. Yeah. Not worth it. The money also, clearly didn't go on a story, though. And if anything, like eighty-seven million—that's a bargain for what it looks like. <laughs> I think, like, it looks absolutely <laughs> stunning. Because yeah. they didn't have a scriptwriter or a uh, is, or a story that, plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is that what we can appreciate here, then, Alistair? The kind of technicals and the scope of it, perhaps. Definitely. I mean, I'm far warmer on it than everybody else here. I really uh, responded to it, um, even though you know. The flaws are there to see. I mean, I disagree slightly with Larkin about the voiceover. Um, it's a Fox release, and this film has been much delayed. It was supposed to come out last year, then it was originally going to come out earlier this summer, and it kept just being pushed back and pushed back. And I think that's because Disney now own Fox, and I'm pretty sure that they were just like, right, we need to try and make this at least somewhat conventional for an audience. Please put in this voiceover. Please add some zero-gravity fight sequence. Please, please, please add Brad Pitt fighting a monkey. Please put all of this in there to make it palatable for an audience who are wanting some conventional space film. Uh, So you're saying there that the the genre, it's just trying to please what genre it is rather than doing anything different? No, no, it is... I mean, I wouldn't say it's doing anything different because I agree fully with Larkin that it is following the Apocalypse Now formula, but in space. Mm. And so it is a very familiar narrative just in a completely unique setting for what the story is. Um, But, yeah, I I don't think it is trying... I don't think James Gray's intentions were to add a voiceover or any of these things. It does feel like Fox saw it and were like, oh, we've spent all this money on this film, we need to make it a hit, and that's why it sort of falls between two stools, between this sort of brooding, uh, really melancholy art house drama and this sort of intentionally uh, massive blockbuster. I would say it's 80% internalised art house. I was going to say, if you've seen the trailer, I was not expecting this film from the trailer because the trailer gives you much more impression. It's going to be more about these... Because it opens, obviously, with these power surges happening in the UK... In the UK, sorry. In, globally, these power surges are happening. And this is why Brad Pitt has to go back out to find his father or not find his father who's up near Neptune and this could be causing the power surges or not. But you think there's going to be... I don't know, from the trailer, I thought there'd be more of that. And it really isn't. It's like a kind of solo trip through space. Yeah, I was expecting Independence Day from this. No, and I, what I did was. you get? I then, was. Uh, 2001 Space Odyssey with tears rolling down a beautiful man's face. But they <laughs> yeah, this is true. They haven't put how much money it made on IMDb, which means they uh, haven't made any. It's only just opened, yeah, I think. Yeah, it's only just opened. The, uh, still, the box office will come out tomorrow. No? Really? It's yeah, going to yeah, be up be against Downton, tomorrow, though, yeah. which is crushing America. Crushing. Crushing it. No, it's. I think they're going to suffer. If they don't make tons of money the first weekend, people are going to start listening to their friends' reviews, and I don't think it's going to make as much money as But there hoping. was Oscar buzz for Brad Pitt, wasn't there? Yes, I, but I think he Brad, deserves that. I think no, I think Brad Pitt's Oscar buzz is just going to go back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which yeah, I think supporting. is yeah a very like definite supporting nomination. Well, this is a similar thing with Gravity, where it's like I can't stand the. Obviously, that's why Gravity got made is because you got two A-listers. Um, but whenever you have people who are like peak A-listers, you can't really cast them as scientists or astronauts or anything. Anything kind of. <laughs> more unusual like that you have to cast them as like a Cliff Booth in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood <laughs> you have to use their A-list uh, persona to like absorb more into a character it was like every th- throughout the whole film while I think Brad Pitt 
did a great job and there's lots of emotional complexity to his character that certainly uh, probably appealed to him. Um, I could not mm. not see is, Brad Pitt as You're Astronaut thinking what Man. a good job Brad Pitt is doing. <laughs> but is, is there, that, that brings a point actually because obviously there's the, the whole story in that you know he's going to find his father who went missing. Is there enough emotional depth in this film to make it worthwhile? No. Okay. <laughs> well, not worthwhile. That's a funny. Thing. I didn't. I didn't feel emotionally connected to to the to the father son dynamic. The music in particularly. does. The music does most of the emotional weight lifting in this film. I think. Okay. So it's kind of a muted review, I think. From more muted than I was expecting. I went in with really high expectations, yeah, and I was yeah, I was a little let down. I still think it's Rad Astra. My Not God. bad, Astra. Oh, goodness, great. Right, thank you very much. Um, so, Ad Astra, I believe, is showing at all three cinemas in Cambridge. Uh, For that it, amount of money, they need to make it back somehow, don't they? Uh, is, yeah, well, yeah. exactly, exactly. So you can see it at any of the three cinemas in Cambridge, and it is, and it is a certificate 12. A! We are now going to move on to something wildly different. A fantastic film about female empowerment. This is Hustlers. I just want to take care of my grandma, maybe go shopping every once in a while. When I was a kid, I always wanted to work with animals. <laughs> I was close. These Wall Street guys, you see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. The game is rigged and it does not reward people who play by the rules. It's like robbing a bank, except you get the keys. Are you in? I got a These are my coworkers. Jobs, please. What if somebody calls the cops and says what? I spent $5,000 at a strip club, send help. We didn't do anything wrong. You know, Tony wouldn't let this happen. I'm going to text him. Who gave her her phone back? That is the trailer for Hustlers, which is showing in cinemas now. This is a film uh, starring, well, various people, including uh, Jennifer Lopez, Constance Wu, Cardi B, who I think we heard there, uh, one of her songs. Um, it is about a uh, group of strippers. Destiny, uh, as life changes forever when she becomes friends with Ramona, who is played by Jennifer Lopez, uh, the top money earner at the club. Uh, Following the 2008 economic collapse, they have to find a way of getting their lives back together due to sort of financial burdens. Um, I think we've got three people that have seen this here. So I'll start with you, Ashley. I mean, the, the, one of the things that you just see in all of the reviews is it's a film about strippers, it's a film about strippers. But actually, it's about more than just stripping, right? Mm, yeah, no, for sure. It's a, they, they do pit themselves as entrepreneurs. That just happens to be how they make their money. And it's it's a li it's kind of on the nose how they're saying that they're robbing people like the Wall Street bankers they're robbing are robbing people. So that was a bit on the nose for me, but it was it, it had so much potential. This film I really enjoyed it. I went with someone who was not the demographic that was supposed to enjoy it. They really enjoyed it, but we were both annoyed that they didn't try harder. They bridesmaids and girls tripped this film, and it could have been a spotlight. Who's the demographic that it should be for? large groups of girls who are 20 to 40. <laughs> okay, Lorcan and Alistair, <laughs> I'm going to come to you. Uh, what did you. Do you agree with Ashley's comments there? Do you think that it, it just didn't have quite enough oomph, perhaps? Um, no, no, I, I loved it. Um, I think that um, the director, uh, Levine Scafaria, yes. um, she has previously made like really small indie comedies like that film The Meddler, with uh, Susan Sarandon. So this is a really strange change of pace for her into a sort of, I don't know, a gender-reversed Martin Scorsese movie, essentially. Mm. And she adapts to it really well. I, I found it incredibly exciting. Uh, one thing that is important to note is the fact that this was originally going to be directed by Adam McKay, who made yeah. The Big Shot and Vice. And it's so good that it's been given to a female director yes, because it's so strange to see this world portrayed in a non-sexualized light the only scene that in the strip club that's actually sexualized is that you know the first jennifer lopez yeah. dance scene and that is only because we're seeing it through the eyes of the constance Wu's character who's like wow i want to be friends with this person so i can you know 
make the big money like that. But again, in the way that that first scene is filmed, yes, it is the one sexualized bit, but there's something about it that is just so empowering when you when you watch it. And it's and also I, like Jennifer Lopez is 50, which is also just looks like incredible. which is just like wow. <laughs> I didn't know that about the directors. They should have left it with that director because it reminded me underneath it had sort of a spotlight big short vibe because it's based on a New York Times article and Julia Stiles is playing that journalist and she's barely used and this film had big short potential for sure and they they girls tripped it i don't know i i i think it's just better in the hands of a female director to be honest i, th- I think that with a male director i worry that it would just get very leery on uh, the dancers and that's just completely irrelevant to a story about female empowerment yeah, which is a, which is essentially what it's about, and I I kind of like that it didn't go too much into sort of big short territory. I I think this film actually um, had a lot. It was it had a lot of depth to it, and it, it was actually quite an intelligent piece of work. What do you think, Lorcan? Yeah, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it. The way the way the film's marketed, like you say, like a lot of the film, uh, a lot of the critic reviews are just talking about like it's the stripper movie. And I think that is the way it's been marketed. So I was very pleasantly surprised when I watched it. Um, to see a film with no significant male roles uh, that portrays female leads as actual people with dignity, which yeah. was pleasant. Yeah. Um, I think, in like Alice just says, uh, it's like a, a gender-flipped Scorsese film. I think this film plays perfectly as a sister film to Wolf of Wall Street mm-hmm. in that it's very light on plot points and narratively, narratively and aesthetically, it's deliberately overind- overindulgent. Um, the only thing is, where Wolf of Wall Street is a three-hour film that feels like an hour and a half, this is an hour and ten minutes. Oh, this is 110 minutes that feels about three hours long. I think the, despite the performances and the shots and the editing, is all very, it's all very fast and there's a lot of energy behind it. But for some reason, I got about, I thought I was like halfway through and I was barely through the first act. I'm not quite sure why. And I think you can tell it's based on a magazine article because it is. It is light on plot points, and they try their best to dig some extra depth out of it, which they do. I'm just not sure if there's enough here for 110 minutes. I think they've sacrificed a very neat, big 90-minute film here for the sake of a longer runtime, and overall, overly, in the long run, I think that's going to discredit it a little bit, which is unfortunate. Oh, I, I actually disagree with you. I, I didn't think it was too really? long at all. I. I, mean, I don't know, I was swept up in the whole thing. I just liked that I felt like it did have a lot of energy and, you know, it, it had enough in its plots to run with that 110-minute um, time. But also, I mean, I don't know, I just enjoyed everything about it. I thought uh, Jennifer Lopez was absolutely um, incredible as Ramona. And I think a lot of, there has been a lot of talk, actually, about her performance. Um, would we agree that she's sort of the star of this? Mm, yeah, very, very much so. I don't think she's going to get enough credit because... Unless you're sort of a... Gen- well, I was talking about this with Emma on Thursday on stage and screen. Unless you're sort of a, cl- a more of a Jennifer Lopez fan, so you kind of know her real personality a bit more, you'll think she's just doing a J-Lo in this film, but she's not. She is someone else entirely. And Constance Wu is not annoying in this. She's very good at this. She was annoying in um, Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> just maybe a little bland in Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> um... When we talk about sort of female friendship movies, because this, that, I think that's one of the key themes of this. Um, do we think it does anything different with that format? I liked it because it was very complicated, and you could tell it was the the gender reversal did work very well. Because when I can't think what film starring men I'm thinking of, but I've not seen those characters before played by women. So J Lo is very much the mothering type and you can tell that she's like that because she's obviously lost something and Constance Wu again has lost something so she is always seeking relationships and love and closeness with someone you see that all the way through um they they labor it a bit at the end there's there's very quick retribution for everyone that feels a bit Mm. forced and they just smash it in your face at the end whereas they didn't need to because if you were paying attention they did drip it nicely throughout the whole film and i think we're spoon fed at the end and sort of talked down to with the ending because because of the nature of what they're doing, uh, the, what they're doing is uh, immoral and duplicitous, and so you never really the, most of the films told through the eyes of Constance Wu's character, and so you never really do get a strong sense of 
there's very on the surface love and affection and compassion but under underwriting it you're never quite sure at what point it's going to turn or how it's going to turn or really who you can trust in this kind of hustling business i didn't i didn't i didn't feel like it was a crash course in tying loose ends at the end like ashley did i thought i thought it wrapped up quite nicely and uh, there's a really great scene where um Constance Wu's character calls Julie Stiles uh, playing the reporter and she's just kind of like here's what I take away from my own story which I thought was very nice I thought it was one of the best parts of the film she kind of wraps up the plot the point of the movie very neatly and securely Thank you I'm sorry I was just paying attention to time because we've got so much else to talk about today so um I don't know, it felt like that one was a little bit mixed, perhaps, in our... I, I loved it. I really, really loved it. I'm just annoyed it wasn't better, because it so easily could have been amazing. It's just very good. No, I've, uh, yeah, two positives from me so far on this show, which is a rarity, I so know. please enjoy me. Please enjoy me liking things today, guys. Uh... <laughs> um, Hustlers are showing at The View and Light Cinemas in Cambridge. It is a certificate 50. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ballad of Lucy Jordan by Marianne Faithful. It is because we are about to talk about Thelma and Louise. Did you see his butt? <laughs> Thelma, have you lost your mind? I'm uh, Investigator Hal Slocum, Arkansas State Police. You get your butt back here, Thelma, now. As you know, we've tapped your phone. What? Maybe got a few too many parking tickets. Uh, Tell me what happened. You're getting in deeper every moment you're gone. You want to step back and get in your car again, please? I swear, three days ago, neither one of us would have ever pulled a stunt like this, but if you was able to meet my husband, you'd understand why. Thelma and Louise. How do you like the vacation so far? <laughs> we'll be drinking margaritas by the sea, Mama Cedar. As we like to do on Bums on Seats, we are going back in time to revisit a wonderful classic. This is Ridley Scott's Thelma and Louise, starring Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Sarandon. Yeah, Sarandon. Sarandon. Um, who play two friends, Thelma and Louise, who have planned a weekend getaway. And what happens is it's a road trip that goes slightly awry. Uh, so who's seen this one? Who's... Oh, most of us. Okay. Um, how does it feel? Because the film originally came out in 1991. I think I initially saw it about 10 years ago um, and watched it again uh, very recently. How does it feel going back to something that's seen as such a classic? Well, I, I didn't go back to it. It was my first time. Oh, it was go. your first time. First then that go, question first. can scratch that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would have seen it at the cinema because I am that much older than everyone else around this table um, and I, at the time you have to appreciate it was an incredibly fresh breath of air and it wasn't really what you expected from Ridley Scott either mm. although re-watching it it did make me, it, you know, the whole the eighties soundtrack, the thundering clouds of dust everywhere, the cars, the the, the the helicopters rising out of canyons. It is, it's got that real late eighties feel about it. But I think that the chemistry between both Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis is was something that, you know, it did, it hasn't come around. You don't get that many Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids you know, with two women in the lead roles. And I think it shouldn't be underestimated for that. And I think it deserves a place in film culture history for, for, for what it did, you know, bearing in mind that was 28 years ago. And, you know, that's a lot. That's pretty long. You know, we, we've moved on a lot in terms of women's rights and what we said. I'm sure that there are some scenes in this that I think you would not see made in films today necessarily. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's very, for the time, it's like, it's mostly underplayed and it just lets the... It, the film just lets the plot carry out without any kind of like fourth wall breaking or like wink wink stuff. Uh, I think, funnily enough, 
Ridley Scott's being has been a little notorious in the past for not being an actor's director. He likes hiring the best people for everything and then just letting them do their job so he can focus on the aesthetic. Yeah. And I think personally that the characters of Thummer and Louise are a little flat, but it's those those two performances and the chemistry between them that really sells the movie. I always love I I I there's this bri- I think it's brilliant I think Gina Davis in particular playing Thelma and you see it from the very beginning when she's in her sort of horrible like she's in her overcrowded house and she's eating a candy bar and she just keeps taking one bite and then putting it back in the fridge and then going back to the fridge and taking another bite and it's just and that carries all the way through it's like she never wants to drink a proper size bottle she just buys loads of miniatures the whole time and spends this whole trip just drinking miniature bottles of wild turkey and I I don't know things like that I really enjoyed and it's funny it is funny it is funny, and I, th- I was just about to say, because we were talking about the performances there, we'll go on to the supporting cast a bit later, but particularly Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon, that chemistry they have, mixed with, I think, um, very... I actually really like the, the, the script, Callie Corey's script. There are some really great lines throughout the film. There's just a kind of different energy, and it's it's interesting re- re-watching it, because I actually forgot about a lot of those little details, like you were saying, those, those little things that just, I don't know, may make the film even better when you watch it a second time and think about think about I don't I think it's a longish film again it's about two hours ten minutes I think and I didn't find a I didn't find very many wasted moments in that or very many wasted shots in that let's you know in comparison with the other two films I've seen this week which are Downton and Ad Astra this has got the most content in two hours and ten minutes and it does you know it, it is a bit it's a powerhouse and you know a lot is going on in this movie a lot happens it is a it's a bit of an epic road trip story. yeah in terms of the story, because you said there were bits in the film that you wouldn't even see in films made today. There are some scenes in it, you know, that go into quite, let's say, dark territory. What is it about this film that manages to, to pull that off without it, it with still making it sort of bubbly and fun, but actually treating some quite dark themes? It's a great story, and Ridley Scott knows how to maintain the tone without... Getting, making it melodramatic or too overly top and like the sincere performances really do I was thinking about this I rewatched Kill Bill not too long ago and there's the scene where you find out what's happened to the bride for four years while she's been in the coma and it's incredibly dark but the way Tarantino pulls it off is by maintaining that tone and having the characters just completely own their performances and I think it's similar here where it's a really solid story very well paced great performances and they just they're just everyone's just kind of in their element and they're able to keep things at an even pace and tone yeah because we haven't mentioned any of the supporting male mm-hmm. male roles in this but I think again Harvey Keitel is excellent as the FBI agent with a really and Michael Madsen never better never better Michael Madsen is kind of dreamboat. Louise's dead dreamboat um, as, as, as Louise's kind of deadbeat boyfriend which in some ways you know this is what's kicks kickstarting a whole road trip she's sick to death of the fact that he won't commit but there is the most beautiful scene with the two of them in a in a motel room and then in a cafe and I've you know seeing Michael Madsen now he's still there's still all that charisma as I was saying outside maybe lost in some heavy living these days but it's an incredible performance and of course you've got Brad Pitt bursting onto our screens yeah. in this no one had really that, seen that him that was his first that was sort of his, his first debut. major role. And it, yeah, yeah, and yeah, and, and he just is, you know, and he is. Well, you, it, it was interesting watching this Brad Pitt twenty eight years ago in the same week you're watching mature Ad Brad Pitt and yeah. Ad Astra, and only a couple yeah. of weeks after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and you can see all that potential just burst, all that charm, all that charisma, all that movie star is right there in that scene. Thinking about, I don't want to give too much away for any of our listeners that might not have seen it, but some of the things that Thelma and Louise get up to, particularly towards the end of their road trip, uh, some of the more preposterous things, perhaps. Um, Is the film a little bit too forgiving of those actions, perhaps? I think the film, obviously it's a a road trip, but I think... As it goes on, like they, Thumb and Louise, uh, kind of instantly get into like deeper and deeper hot water, uh, and so I think it does get to a point where they're just throwing off the shackles of the world they've known. And I'm grateful for the more extreme stuff that happens towards the end of the film because it adds a lot more visual variety and it just it infuses this like uh, just throwaway energy to like the film and the characters that and it, it creates a lot of visual contrast to the the first half of the film for sure. It is, yeah, I mean, because visually, I think you shouldn't you shouldn't underestimate. It is a really cinematic film, I think, and you know the iconic that iconic Thunderbird, the big green Thunderbird that they've got is yeah, it's and the way that they 
physically changed throughout the movie as well. I, I really like it. They're so yes. they're, they're sunburned. They're, you know, you start off and, in fact, one of the waitresses says, oh, you mean the one with the tidy hairdo? And that's Susan Sarandon. She's incredibly, she, you know, everything's in plastic bags and things. And then you've got Gina Davis who's just dragging three huge suitcases in and it's just, you know, a bit of a mess. And then they, yeah, the, the way they become more badass as the film goes on, I like that. I, I enjoyed the physical transformation. And, uh... Oh, again, not to give anything away, but a, a lot of people talk I think about. We all know how it ends. Well, we all we do all know, <laughs> we all know the ending, but we won't say exactly what happens. Um, but obviously, there's a lot of talk about the ending, and we discussed this just before the show as well. Um, some people really love that ending. Some people think it's really stupid. What do you guys think? I think it's a great ending because it is synonymous with the film. You, you hear them and Louise, and over everything else, you think about the ending. Watching it now, I'm horribly confused at the ending, but maybe that's it. It's just such a sudden, abstract, weird thing that just completely enraptured people and made it synonymous with the film. It's illogical. It's it's, it's really illogical. You have to suspend your disbelief. But then, to be honest, plenty of things happen in this film where, you know, it's like, would they really be that unlucky? Would they really have been that stupid in certain bits? Would they really have been that naive? You know, but it's necessary to get to this final point which is like you say throwing off the shackles of the patriarchal society and you know just because i've embracing never, their female friendship i've never seen it before and before i started you said to me emmy you're like oh i hate that ending i was like what how can you how can you hate the ending the ending is down the, that's the film surely but it i doesn't, don't think i said i hated it well, it, well, it, it, it probably upset you. me the first time but it now just seems illogical but it's, it's a good i do get it now it's though. the it ending for work. the movie though really it is, and I think even though it is, again, preposterous, like I said, a lot of the film is kind of preposterous, but it it gets away with it. I think there's something in the film that makes it all work, even I think, ending. as Lorcan said, that tone is so steady throughout, and also it doesn't make any apologies for that. It doesn't dwell on the ending. It doesn't make any apologies for it. It just, it that's, that's it the just end. Happens. Boom, it yeah. just happens. <laughs> and then you're out of there. Then you're straight into the credits. Exactly. It, keeps, it keeps you thinking about the film after you walk out of the theatre, yeah. I guess. Maybe yeah. that's, that's the trick. That's what reminded me of the, the, the change in physicality, the credits, because you see them as they're... Oh, I was about to say what they did at the end there. As they do the thing they do at the end, and then you don't realise how different they look until they start flashing up. Sort of, it's flashback. Only three days previously. Yeah. And it's, well, it's a whole life lived, isn't it? Neither of them have really lived ever, and they've, they've, they've shoved a whole life into three days of fun and debauchery and actually the thing about the credits where they go back and you see them looking all prim again um it did make me think oh i have been on this journey with them it does feel Mm. like you've been along with them Mm. on that road trip Mm. um it is a classic i'm very much a fan i was yeah having i thought i was ready to throw it away as kind of chick flick and it's just these two girls going on a road trip and I was pleasantly surprised by how complicated everybody was. So I, I remember I watched it in two halves and I came in and I told Emma again, I was like, oh, I don't like Susan Sarandon's character at all. She's like, I don't think you're not supposed to not like her. But then I ended up, hey, Gina Davis's character annoyed me so much, but they, they just both have such light and shade to them and they do they make they make the opposite right and wrong decisions between the two of them and that that's the, it's the you're my Thelma to you're the Thelma to my Louise thing, and I totally get that now. They need each other because they they, they both have flaws and complementary fixes for each other. Well, it becomes equally weighted, don't you? At, yeah. at the beginning, Gina Davis is kind of losing it, and Susan Sarandon's having to drag her along, and then sort of halfway through, that's what's through, and then Gina Davis becomes the one who's like, come on, we've got to keep on going, we've got to keep, you know, we've got to get this, we've got to sort it. But the, seed, the seeds of Gina Davis's kind of... Uh where Gina Davis's character goes, it's all there at the start. Like she's she's so excited to be just away from her husband that she is letting loose, and Susan Strandon has to kind of reel her in a little bit. So the seeds are all there for what's going to happen. It's it's, it's very tight it's, script. Yeah, it's, yeah. I was going to say I really think that Cali Curry script, you know, script is one is 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 absolutely it, it's a classic. It's 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 a it brilliant won, script. I think it won the Oscar it that did, year and deservedly well. so. Yeah, I think absolutely. Okay, um, we've got to move on. I'm afraid, but uh, Thelma and Louise is one you can watch uh, from the comfort of your own couch on the good old Netflix. I believe it's a certificate 15, but don't quote me on that. It is. It I is. watched it last night. It's a oh, 15. Thank you very much. Uh, right, moving on now, we are going to talk about The Last Tree. I wouldn't change big part of you for all the world. In a way, you're all my boys. But we're not.
trailer for The Last Tree which is directed by Shola Amo and stars Sam Adewumi in the uh, lead role of Femi. Uh, it's a story about a young boy initially called Femi who is living in foster care in rural Lincolnshire and then uh, he goes back to London to live with his mother and it's sort of a coming of age story. Um, you go to when he's a teenager and uh, growing up in London and the sort of difficult relationship with his mother along with just the difficulties of being a young man um, growing up uh, in certain circumstances. So Alistair and I were lucky enough to see this at the preview at the Arts Picture House on Tuesday, I want to say. but it, I believe it was Tuesday. It was yeah. Tuesday, and I think um, we both liked this film um, very, very much. Uh, how do you... Is it, is it even fair to compare this to other coming-of-age dramas, do you think? Um, well, I mean, it's inevitably going to be compared to coming-of-age dramas, as coming-of-age dramas always are, but it is unusual in the sense of its locations, um, rural Lincolnshire and then uh, a London suburb, you know, these places that you don't normally see on screen. So it feels more authentic uh, than the usual coming-of-age story, even though it's it's semi-autobiographical for the director and it's picked up from his own experiences of being fostered by a white family and also just like the experiences of other British Nigerians that he's spoken to, um, who's, you know, whose stories helped flesh out the script uh, to be what it is. So, yeah, it's it's a unique coming-of-age story, but it will get compared to everything. You know? Yeah, I think one of the... I mean, this is one of the questions I asked at the um, Q&A with the director, Shola um, Amo, on Tuesday. Um, there are actually quite a lot of themes in this that... that are kind of intricately woven together. You know, there's this the idea of him coming from foster care. There's this relationship with his mother. There's um, issues around cultural identity and race. There's issues around gang culture in uh, inner city London. There's so much going on that all put together, I think it was very cleverly executed. And one of the things that I thought was that it doesn't matter who you are, there is something you can take away from this film there's something you can connect with yeah I think that the theme that you mentioned that is most prominent in the film is the cultural identity of how mm. Femi feels torn between two country, cultures God, mm. I was about to say countries um, yeah because he grew up in rural Lincolnshire just this mostly predominantly white uh, background and then he's basically sent back to move with his birth mother and, be, and he's just forced into a culture that is technically his own, but it's one that he's had no correspondence with during his life, and that is where the sort of the tension of the drama comes from. And there were lots of like little scenes, little details, like him walking around listening to the Cure, but telling everybody he's listening to Tupac because you know, a young black man can't be listening to the Cure. Yeah, and, that, 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 and, and I think those bits though they're actually quite subtly done. Like I don't think it's ever you know race is a really big issue, but I noticed that it's never outwardly spoken like when the bits in Lincolnshire nobody says anything about the fact that he's the only black kid in Lincolnshire it's just you kind of notice it when he goes to London and suddenly he's that there's a whole mix of cultures and people um, and in terms of sort of the the racism it's it's not even it's actually you know there's the scene with the girl uh, who is being made fun of because she's dark-skinned. And again, it's all these little details that I think are just put in so so subtly, but really intelligently, perhaps. Yeah, and it's also... It's sort of a twist to what you'd usually expect, the fact that he was the only black person in this, you know, rural setting, and he seemed to have, a like, a really nice childhood he was you know he was loved he had friends he had that sense of community and then his first exposure 
to racism is moving into a city with all these different cultures, which mm. I think, yeah, is something that... You wouldn't isn't expect. Really, yeah, you wouldn't expect it. It's an issue that I haven't seen explored in film before. And, I've, yeah, I found that really interesting, yeah. And I think a lot of um, what we discussed on Tuesday um, at the preview was around how visual this film is. Um, it's got a very beautiful aesthetic um, and I think one of the things that was noted was how it changes between the different locations, doesn't it? There's like the kind of warm colours of rural Lincolnshire and then you go to London and it changed slightly and then at the end he goes to um, Nigeria and it changes again. Do you think that, that that's a, one of the strengths of the film perhaps? Yeah, definitely. And it's not showy. Like the way we've described it makes it sound like it's like a really showy, a really prominent visual thing, but it's it's very subtly done, um, and it's very simple. I mean, for the for the countryside settings, it's all nice painterly shots. When we get to the city, it's all handheld, it's all intimate, it's all you know vibrant. And then in the Nigeria scenes at the end, they mostly play out of a series of like long takes that mm. are just held from like one camera angle as a, he goes to visit his birth father and there's like maybe a two or three minute scene and it's just this one shot of him just sat in the living room waiting to see his father mm. and it's you know after the sort of the vibrancy of you know childhood in these two you know different british locations that are you know so alive for different reasons it's the movie essentially calming down as he goes to you know reconnect with his father and you know try and learn some more about where he came from and I think, um, yeah, the, the, a lot of that is actually, you mentioned that scene where he's sitting just waiting to meet his father. I think there's a lot of strength in um, Sam Adewumi, for example's performance there. Not just him. I mean, the supporting cast are also great, but um, there's a lot to be said for, for the performances in this film. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, Sam has sort of a, a difficult job to... Sorry, I'm saying Sam, because I, oh, I briefly met him, so we're on we first name terms now. We first name Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but what he does that, I think, as well, is the fact that this is a character where everything is internalised. There aren't... You know, when he does, you know, get angry about, you know, be, being between these two cultures, like when he lashes out at a teacher or his mother, still a lot of his angst is unspoken. And it's, he still manages to communicate that very effectively. So, yeah, it's a, it's, I think it's a great performance. There's a lot of emotional depth. I'm just thinking of the scenes where there's mother. There was a couple of scenes where I just, I don't know, I just cried. And I think it was everything. I think it was the power of the performances. I think it was the score. The score was really, really beautiful. Um, I think this is a film that we can definitely recommend. It's out on the 27th of September and it'll be showing at the Arts Picture House. It's called The Last Tree um, and it's it's really one to go and watch, I think. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. You are listening to Bums on Seats and uh, we've got one more film for you and it is Downton Abbey. The King and Queen are coming to Downton. What? I want every surface to gleam and sparkle. A royal luncheon, a parade and a dinner. I'm going to have to sit down. How's it all going? Mary's got it under control. Hardly. I need your help, Carson. I'll be there in the morning, my lady. Don't you worry. Remember to pray for us. I'll put in a word. That is the trailer for Downton Abbey, which is based on the ever-popular TV show, uh, which I think you can see on ITV. Um, it's directed by Michael Engler, and the story sees the famous Crawley family getting prepared for a visit from King George V and Queen Mary. But trouble soon arises when Mrs Patmore, Daisy and the rest of the servants learn that the King and Queen travel with their own chefs and attendants. And it says here, setting the stage, for some shenanigans what are the shenanigans <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think uh, I'll turn to Emma and Lorcan Alistair have you seen this uh, no no, 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 um, no okay. yeah um, no the most exciting uh, cinematic event of the year I've missed it completely oh, okay. I'm sorry well Emma uh, and Lorcan you were saying before you quite like this tell us more about these shenanigans it's it, it, 
you cannot do you can, I really don't think you can dislike this movie. I just was saying to Lorcan, I've watched I watched the first three seasons of Downton Abbey and it was a phenomenon. I think it finished maybe three years ago and the fans have been clamoring for this ever since for a film. And they have made the perfect Downton Abbey film. If you like the TV show, if you know the TV show, it treats its cast with respect, it knows its audience, it treats its audience with respect. There are more beautiful shots of High Clear House than you can shake a stick at. There is soothing music. The problem is, I think, that because they have, because they managed to get, everybody wanted to come back and do this. Every cast member that was still left alive by the end of the TV show wanted to come back and do this. So they've got maybe 20 characters and they want to give them all a little bit of screen time. So they all get their own separate stories, but really none of those stories come to anything. The boiler breaks down, there's no hot water, but that's okay because there's a plumber so you can fix it. Yeah, have you, you seen know. the TV show? Yeah, I watched the first three seasons. Okay, so is, is this purely for lovers of the TV show or can anyone go and enjoy it? Well, Lorcan can I, answer that. I never watched an episode of Dance and Abbey and I, I I think they do a really good job of just catching you up because it's there's like this Spiel, Spielbergian shot at the start where like we're following random characters through the hallways of Downton Abbey, so you get a good a good layout of the geography of the place and like the character interactions. So I was like, oh, this is this feels like a movie. I wasn't expecting this to feel like a movie. Um, really, I'm just, all I'm just going to talk about is the gay nightclub. <laughs> okay. Because I did not know there was any there was like, like that that I am not butler in... character was gay. Oh no, that that did that is in the TV in the TV show that is a you. Don't don't know it from the beginning but he then comes yeah. comes out but then like an hour and half into the movie and all of a sudden there's this gay nightclub and I was like this is unexpected <laughs> well <laughs> I think but, like, it was an unexpected gay nightclub anyway I think to find in York in 1927 uh, yeah, or maybe not the, the it was packed full of the best looking men I've ever seen <laughs> it was a happening little place <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was buzzing and the centre of town <laughs> blew me away <laughs> Uh, I'm sold. I'm going to see this now. Yeah, suddenly I'm interested. But Rob Rob Collier Thomas, who plays, um, and I'm trying to remember, because he, because Carson, you see, one of one of the dramatic storylines is that Carson, the head butler throughout all of Downton Abbey, I believe at the end of the TV show, I didn't watch it. He has to retire due to health. But Lady Mary, who is Michelle Dockery, who's always been his favourite, has to come and beg him to come because they're not going to be able to cope with the royal visit unless they have Carson there. So this kind of pushes. The sub butler knows how to do it, but then it all works out well for him because he gets to go off to York for a night out and yeah. you know oh, find and, the and best the, nightclub ever. Even, even that, like obviously, well, I won't, I won't say what happens in that in that particular subplot, but like I was weirdly thankful that there's just like no tension throughout the whole movie. It was just a perfectly <laughs> pleasant watch. There is was, more dramatic tension in CBB's episode. I'm not kidding. Nothing. Yeah. There is so no, no point. They're just preparing for this visit. They, from... they squeeze a lot of plot. Like nothing's boring. Every I was I was like oh like oh like Andy wants to marry the like the the kitchen. Daisy. Porter. She wants to marry. Daisy. They're getting married. Like, and then oh, she flirts I, with the plumber and plus, a little bit. Like, God, that darn plumber. Get out of there. I want Andy to have her. Uh, you have Lady Edith thinks she, Lady Edith is pregnant but then her husband is going to be away for the birth of her baby so she's really cross about this and she's like in this day and age you know I want it but it's okay because that also gets sorted out because you know and if someone you, speaks to the Queen and organises that if you're going to judge a movie by what it's trying to do versus uh, if it succeeds in doing that like really it's five out of five because it the everything the key word for this for me is appropriate. The performances are appropriate. The writing is not bad. It is appropriate. The directing is appropriate. Well, it's, Julian it's Fellows, well Julian it's Fellows wrote it just as he wrote the whole. You know, just as from Gossip Park, it then went on to Downton Abbey, the TV show, and so he's written this. So it, it knows exactly what it's doing. And like I say, it is Downton Abbey is enormous in the states it was shown on pbs and it has a passionate following in america that i don't even think that we get in the you know we're not that passionate about it in the uk so i think it is going to slay it because they are just like you say it's appropriate it's it's respectful it's respectful of its audience and of the cast it does exactly what it you know what it should do but it is it is like nothing i've ever seen in terms of yeah but isn't that its selling point in a way it's so soothing it's like they wheeled a christmas special into the cinema on an enormous tv screen but like lorcan said it is cinematic to look at it that's not to take away any of the yeah no it's it's not like usually well most often whenever like a, a british tv show gets turned into a film um Either, they, either everyone goes to Spain or uh, it just feels like three episodes of the TV show put together. Well, this feels cinematic. And it's kind of like I said earlier, it's kind of like um, an Avengers movie where they just got, okay, we've got 20 to 30 characters. What do we do? We have to give each one a plot point, space it out enough so you never feel like you're getting too much of one character. And everyone, everyone has a 
fully realised subplot. There's a lot of Branson. I mean, Branson, who is quite a popular character from the... He is the widower of Lady Sybil, who got killed off rather graphically um, in childbirth in the TV show. And he is uh, he was previously an IRA sympathiser. And there's an excellent possible assassination subplot that Branson is involved with. Was he also gets some... No, not at all. <laughs> okay, <good. laughs> not at all. <laughs> I was not expecting... Gets Dana wrapped up incredibly quickly, obviously. Yeah. And then he also gets... He gets the one romantic... Well, he and uh, the butler... Rob Collier James, I can't remember what his character name is, which is terrible of me. Um, they both get a bit of a romantic subplot. And in fact, I was rather touched by the butler's um, I, subplot, I, romantic I was subplot. I touched by everyone. The, the worst part of the film, which is also weirdly one of my favourite parts of the film, is whenever Matthew Good was free from his shooting schedule for half a day to show up for one scene. <laughs> yet he's front and centre on that poster. They made it very, very clear in the first scene. I think Lady he's Mary goes, it's unlikely he'll make it back in time. And so they do, they prepare your expectations for that two-minute yeah. cameo at the end. But, it, it, yeah, it's going to, people will love it. Yeah, and it looks like it's just good fun. It, yeah. Yes. yeah. It's completely harmless yeah. on insulting I felt like I should have been watching it stuff full of Quality Street and gin and tonic and red wine in front of a fire I would say and that's no bad that's thing not a bad thing no. not at all but okay well I, 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 you've sold me actually <laughs> I, I was not sure I wanted to see I this I can't film. believe I have sold you I'm feeling much more positive about it since that. when I came out I was like my word that was literally nothing happened but the more I think of it I think oh you know what it left me with a kind of warm it's very pretty to look at as well. The costumes are gorgeous. Well, that, that's yeah. part of its selling point, though. You know, the costumes, the kind of grandiose nature yeah. of everything. It's photographed in an immersive kind of way. You've, it, there's points where it kind of feels like Harry Potter, where it's like, oh, I can totally see people from other other countries feeling like, ooh, I'm like, I'm like in this like board, English boarding school, or ooh, I'm in this like English townhouse. It does. There is that kind of international immersive feel. Helped by the fact that you have both Umbridge and um, Professor McGonagall right there, oh, yeah. right oh, there, of front of this. Maggie. Well, yeah. Oh, sorry, I got very excited. Okay, I think I will go and see this. Right, Downton Abbey is showing, I believe, in all three cinemas. Everywhere in the world. In everywhere <laughs> in the world. Um, it sounds like it's good fun. It's probably a PG. I can't imagine it's... Or, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was 12 PG. No, I think it's PG. It's a PG, so go and see Very mild threat. Very mild threat. Quick, quick shout out for the end of the show for an event happening next weekend at the Junction in Cambridge, the Junction 3 and also the Old Divinity School. It is the second Taste of Anatolia films from Turkey. I believe this is a showcase of a variety of films um, all from Turkish directors. Um, some of the best independent films you can find, uh, including The Pigeon Thieves and Young Blood, and lots and lots. There's films going on all day, so if you fancy that, um, that'll be a really nice event happening next weekend on the 28th and 29th of September. We've got to go. Thank you for joining us. Our next show will be covering some of the Cambridge Film Festival and uh, also some new releases. And uh, this song that we are playing now is Badlands as sung by Bruce Springsteen but it features on the Thelma and Louise soundtrack by Charlie Sexton so we will leave you with that. That's all from us see you in a couple of weeks time. Goodbye Bye. Goodbye.